Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Women aren't the only minority to suffer from poor as well as a complete lack of representation in genre fiction. Among other minorities struggling to have their voices heard are people of colour, people with disabilities and the LGBTQI community. Now, tonight in this episode, we are speaking to the very prolific science fiction and fantasy author Marissa Lingen, whose credits include contributing to Uncanny Magazine's special on Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction from last year. So we thought that she would be a fantastic person to talk to um, about representation of illness and disability in genre fiction. So, Marissa, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, Well, as you said, I am a fairly prolific short story writer in both science fiction and fantasy. And I am also a disabled person myself that I have vertigo. And so I end up with a lot of falls and a lot of balance problems. So this is uh, something that's very near and dear to my heart. Unfortunately, like a lot of the problems that we often talk about on this podcast with representations of women, some of the representations we get of like people with disabilities are just awful and really, you know, um, unfairly representative. What are some of the, the tropes that you have seen out there that you just wish would die a death? Uh, well, it starts with some of the very simplest uh, literal representations where anytime you see somebody doing physical therapy in filmed media, it does not matter whether it is in the 1940s or 400 years from now, they're always walking between two parallel bars (laughs) always i see the bars and i scream um because i have had to relearn to walk and that's not how you do it and having the physical therapist just stand back and watch you and say good try well done that that's completely useless it it is it is a shorthand but it's a completely inaccurate shorthand so you start with things like the literal representation of what does recovering from a major injury or that type of illness mean you know that that is very wrong and then you get into all of the stereotypes of disabled people as completely incapable as infantilized as desexualized um that basically disabled people for the most part are props rather than getting to be characters in a lot of the fiction that we read it's sad when I, I try and think about genre works, particularly in books that I'm, you know, and I sit there and I try and think about books that I've read with characters who have a disability and I really struggle to come up with any examples. The only example that sort of springs to mind immediately is uh, Joe Abercrombie, Half a King. Are you oh, saying yes. you've forgotten our, our sponsor, RJ Barker, and his disabled character? Oh, of course, <laughs> I am, yes. Shocking, Megan, shocking. Oh, I'm sorry, RJ. <laughs> well, quite often people bring up uh, Lois McMaster Bujold's Miles Verkosigan, and I think that he is probably the most awarded character, you know, the, the character whose fiction is the most recognised in the genre. But conversely, a lot of times people forget to think of Miles as disabled at all. I, I'm afraid I've not read it, so I don't know. Uh, there's a whole series of novels by Lois McMaster Bujold, and she's won, I think, more Hugos and more Nebulas than anyone else in history at this point. If not, she's tied with Connie Willis. But there are books like The Warrior's Apprentice and Memory that feature this uh, person who has both birth defects and later injuries, and he... Uh, has to deal with the fact that he cannot always just power through them. But that's when that's one of your main representations in the field for decades, then the, anytime there's something that isn't representing everybody, you know, asking any one book, or even in this case, we've come up with three books, mm-hmm. to to represent an entire population, at that point, anything that misses feels like so much bigger because there's only one. And I think we've dealt with that as women before, right? The Smurfette problem that if there is only one woman, then she represents womankind. And anything that, that is lacking or iffy about her representation, traits that would be fine if there were seven women characters in a book and one of them had those traits become 
stereotypical and obnoxious when there is only one woman. And I think that's true for disabled people, too. Like, uh, the plucky disabled character who never gives up. Well, sure, some people are plucky, and sometimes in a given story, you won't have the need to consider quitting. But when that's all you get, that's when it becomes a problem. If you did want to tell a story with a character who has a disability and you did want them to have a personality trait that might be considered kind of a, a negative trope, you know, that we constantly see this. Um, how might someone approach that um, in terms of trying to write a character who might have, say, a, a plucky personality that doesn't give up? How might you approach that without turning it into just another regurgitation of the same thing that we're seeing over and over again? Well, I think more rep is almost always my answer, that if you have this character and then you also have someone else in the story who is disabled and isn't like that and isn't presented as being the bad disabled person, but just as human variety, you know, the more rep we have, the more there's room for that kind of variety. When there is a um, character with a disability, do you feel that they become a token character? You know, like you have the token person of colour and the token, you know, you can only ever have one in one story. Oh, God, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, well, sometimes you can only even have one in one franchise. Consider Geordi LaForge in Star Trek, right? He yeah. is basically all of disability for Star Trek. And half I of his plots are... I guess I like the plots for Geordi that aren't just about something has gone wrong with Geordi's visor. Sometimes it's Geordi has an engineering problem. And that's when I like the character, is when he gets to have his own stories and not just the disability story. I'm just trying to think about that and think about Geordi LaForge and how I viewed him growing up as a kid. And I must admit, I always thought he and Data were the coolest. Uh yep. <laughs> yes. If I had negative facts outweigh their um, outweigh their benefits, it would have to be Marina Sirtis Troy because they were always making a big deal about her empathy and oh my god, something terrible has happened. She's fainted because there's like all this negative empathy and things like that. Um, and I never, I suppose, growing up as a kid, I never really saw Geordie as being at a disadvantage. I mean, I suppose that, like um, Marissa says, there were quite a few storylines where he was suddenly at a disadvantage because his visor didn't work, but also at times when his visor was cool and he saved the day when nobody else could. Although I suppose you could question, is that him saving the day or is it is it magic and the, the magic replacement? Because I know a lot of the stuff Megan sent out to read had this idea of how much is it okay for someone to be disabled and for, well, you can't see my air quotes, but magic or technology to help them be undisabled so that they can be part of that... Um, part of the storyline and it sort of live up with the others i mean it sounds like a terrible idea what do you think of that marissa do you think people with disabilities and writers who are writing about characters with disabilities should remove all kind of magic that helps them or do you think it's okay to have a little bit what do you think on, on that score well i feel like Jordi is actually a fairly good example here that he he doesn't become like everyone else he can do many of the things other people can do so can i um, you know, if you ask me to do figure skating, I can't, but I can work around a lot of things. And I think most of the disabled people I know have a, a much broader scope of things they can do than things they can't do. So mm -hmm. I think the balance that they found with Jordy, where he, he gets to save the day sometimes because he sees the world differently, and that, you know, is valid, and sometimes just because he has other skills... That, that's a very good balance to strike, I feel. If you can manage it, if you don't keep falling back on, oh no, his visor has malfunctioned. If, if you can focus more on, he's an engineer and he's not exactly like everybody else and data isn't exactly like everybody else. You know, one of the things when I was thinking about doing this podcast is that I wanted to be careful about conditions like autism. I'm mm -hmm. not always comfortable even describing them as a disability, because some things, like me, I can't always walk. I fall down. That is clearly not just a difference. That is less able. But our autistic friends have a different brain wiring. 
And I know some autistic people who view that as a disability and some who don't. So having a broad spectrum of representation of difference seems like it's it's very important in this regard. Absolutely. I'm reading um, John Gwynne's uh, second book in his new series, um, the, the Time of Dread series. Um, and he's got a character, Drem, in that, who is kind of intimated that he's Asperger's. Um, and it's it's one of those uh, questions where, like, Drem, there's nothing about this that makes him less able in any way. In fact, it makes him much more than a lot of the very quite traditional fantasy heroes that surround him. Um, and I think John talked a bit about this um, when, you know, when I saw him, somebody was kind of asking this kind of question. Um, and 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 also that I think what you've just said, this this. Um, you know, in in genre and in the community, how do we approach these characters as, you know, as people saying, well, are, are they just because they're a little bit different from, you know, possibly the kind of greater part of the population? Is this difference? Should it be seen as a disability or should it just be seen as a completely different way of, of viewing the world and, and responding to the world? And I think that if I recommend this series wholeheartedly, it's really, really interesting. Um, it's just a, it's great to have a character that is not the kind of traditional fantasy hero um, that we see from a lot of these writers. I think also it's it's interesting to sort of look at extremes in the sense that, you know, some you have maybe someone who maybe struggles to hear and, you know, you, you may or maybe doesn't have hearing in one ear. But when it comes to representation in fiction, you often get someone, it, it will just be someone who's entirely deaf. That frustrates me in terms of representation um, in, in the sense that we don't, people tend to, it's like, it has to be all or nothing. It's not a sliding scale. Oh, yeah. I, the, the, it, it's the, again, I guess that, that kind of, you know, the one-off representation in that. Mm-hmm. We just when you do see it, it'll often be the the full ex, like an extreme rather than showing that there is various incarnations. That's very socially toxic for people who do have disabilities because almost nobody is the stereotype, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my friend Elsa uh, Shonison Henry Henry, who was the uh, one of the editors for Disabled People Destroy. Uh, is substantially blind and deaf, but she is not completely devoid of sight and hearing. And so if she says, I'm blind, people assume that that means she sees zero things. And if they find out she can see some things, then she gets treated like she's lying. Or, for example, there have been times when my vertigo has been bad enough that I've needed to use a wheelchair in the airport. Uh, Most times I can get through whatever I'm doing with a cane, but the airport is a a special time-limited situation. And, you know, when they ask, can you walk a few steps to get through security, and I can, a lot of fellow passengers, and sometimes in some cases security agents, have acted like, therefore I didn't need the wheelchair and was lying. Um, And you see a lot of this... On the internet, people shaming wheelchair users for standing up out of the wheelchair and getting something off a shelf when they're shopping. Uh, when, in fact, they do need the wheelchair to do the rest of their shopping, either because they can't walk very far or because they have balance problems. But because we have this all-or-nothing representation in our fiction, we end up thinking that it applies to real people and treating them badly because of it. Yeah, completely. Absolutely, and I, I tend to find that you know those people who have experience of having friends or family members with disabilities very much aren't the ones who are glaring at the wheelchair user who gets up and like you say walks a few steps so I think it's very much a a personal thing so anybody who doesn't have personal experience won't understand and like Marissa says will have this black and white view so in a weird way it's even more reason to you know have this in fiction and have this diverse representation so you've got um I mean, the only example I can think of at the moment at the top of my head is is a friend of mine who has tinnitus. And like you say, not completely deaf, but enough that it gets in the way. But when do you ever find someone in a book who goes, oh, I couldn't quite catch that. Could you say it again or can't do something? It's got to be all or nothing. And I think as soon as fiction starts maybe turning this around, hopefully then society's changes will uh, will follow along as well. 
Yeah, I hope, yeah, a good positive feedback loop there would be lovely. <laughs> I mean, is there, does there tend to be a difference between representations of physical and mental disabilities in, in genre fiction? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, first of all, uh, there are, there's more than one kind of mental disability. There's there's mental health disability, yes. and that that is an entire huge uh, conversation that I am so glad we're having more of now. But I think people are sometimes reluctant to apply the word disability to it. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question of uh, developmentally delayed people is yes. how I would currently put it politely. And I think that on the one hand, there is a huge amount of discrepancy in how they're portrayed, especially in genre, because for a lot of science fiction and fantasy people, being less mentally keen is their worst nightmare. They have um, a self-image of being the smart one. Hmm. And so showing someone who was never the smart one, could never be the smart one, gets treated as sort of a horror story or an object of pity. Where, uh, let's think about Game of Thrones, for example, has, has Bran. And, and he is... I haven't watched the TV show, so maybe they're pronouncing it Bran like the muffin. Um, yeah, but, I think they are, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, it, this, this poor little muffin is in <laughs> a wheelchair most of the time. He uses a wheelchair and is paralyzed from the waist down, but he is still mentally extremely sharp. Mm -hmm. And so he gets to have a lot of agency, uh, whereas the character of Hodor is not uh, that he he gets to be heroic finally I'm sorry for spoiling Game of Thrones for but his his heroism has a pathos to it and he only has the agency for basically one thing yes so a final act as well yeah so yeah. that feels to me kind of indicative I'm really interested in the fact that a lot of the examples we're coming up with are grimdark that that was there was Joe Abercrombie and I, I'm wondering whether the non-grimdark authors, like, I don't consider myself a grimdark author, and I kind of feel like we need to step up and say, yes, grimdark has said we're committed to representing the parts of humanity that, that are not bright and shiny, saying, okay, but even in the bright and shiny parts, there's still room for disabled people. Yes. <laughs> Completely, <laughs> I think. <laughs> it's It's kind of... It's almost sad that that is the genre that has embraced it, uh, you know, a genre that is known for looking at kind of darker elements, you think. Well, and there's there's a book like Station Eleven, uh, Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven. I have heard so many people at conventions talk about this book as full of hope and positivity. And every single disabled character in the book dies. And they die quickly and they die preventably that basically it is we've had this apocalypse everybody else is trying to work towards this hopeful new society but people who have either physical or mental disabilities are basically sent out to the woods to die and that is in authorial voice that's not a critique of that culture that is what emily st john mandel does with these characters and that's for a book that is aiming at being positive well, when it comes to fantasy, I often feel that people just look at um, Thomas Covenant, written by Stephen Donaldson, and just kind of go, wow, that was so badly done. I'm never, ever going to touch um, characters with disabilities again. Because, <laughs> I mean, oh, he was just, he was awful. And then they introduced a girl, and she was just useless. And it was, it was such awful representation. But taking a step away from fantasy, I was thinking I've been... Um, I've been binging a little bit on Stephen King recently mm. and they have Tom Cullen in the stand. I don't know if any of you have read or watched mm -hmm. it or anything. And he, he is a person with disabilities um, with in this case, sort of a mental disability that does survive to the end of the book and is one of my favorite characters. Cause he's just, he's just wonderful. He's got such a wonderful sense of humor. Um, but it did bring me to mind of something I once heard in a panel that I was, um, I was sitting in the audience and it was a panel about disability and somebody on the panel said, for God's sake, if you're going to write a character with a disability, 
please don't have them be special and have magical powers. Um, you know, and this was seen as a, a very, a very bad thing, as in you shouldn't not only single out this particular disability, you should then say it makes them so special that they are then elevated to another plane, they're very spiritual, they've got all the magic powers or whatever. I mean, what, what do you think about it, Marissa? Do you agree with the with that statement? Or do you think magic and um, mixing magic and disabilities is a, a good way to move the, the, um, the genre forward? Well, I think that when uh, the magic is caused by the disability, that's a problem. Um, there's kind of a misconception that blind people get sharper other senses. And you look at that and then you think, well, Helen Keller. So obviously not. Um, but that is actually a very common stereotype to perpetuate. And so a character like Daredevil, who, well, he's blind, but he has superpowers in his other senses, really kind of furthers that stereotype. On the other hand, I think this is a bit like when people of color talk about how there's a there's a stereotype of just being there and having magic and supporting the white hero. No, none of these people who complain about this trope are saying, therefore, you can't ever have any, say, you know, Asian wizards or no no black people with magic powers. It, they're saying, don't do it in the tropey way. Don't make it because of their heritage or because of their position in society do it as they have both both are traits a person can have and i think that that should be true of disabled people too that you know if you have someone who is blind and because of their blindness they have magic that's a little bit gross but if you have somebody who happens to both be blind and use magic then that seems like it's a positive thing to me so one of my favourite characters in um, Avatar The Last Airbender is Toph. She's a great character, but her she is blind. Mm-hmm. And her magic, she basically feels vibrations through the earth and then controls the earth as well. So, so it's not blindness caused the magic or the magic caused blindness, but it is in some ways very kind of stereotypical in that her magic then kind of allows her to see, with air quotes, see. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Um, Well, and I I love Toph. I think Toph is a great character. And yeah, it it does have elements of the stereotypical in it. But on the other hand, I feel like while you don't get sharper senses out of having a disability, you do spend more time on learning to compensate. And that's something that I'm able to fill in for myself as part of what happened with Toph. Mm -hmm. That, you know, if if you leave room for the reader to say, oh, well, she could have spent more time developing this skill rather than she was born with this inherently, then I think that's a much better thing. And then when you move on to uh, Legend of Korra, it's fairly clear that Toph's daughter has also inherited, you know, Lin Beifong has inherited her mother's earthbending and is not blind. So she can still metal bend. She still has some of the things that make Toph outstanding. And it, that kind of clarifies that Toph is outstanding because she's Toph rather than because she's blind. I I love Toph. She's one of my faves. (laughs) (laughs) She's so great. She's fantastic. (laughs) Just Avatar, the last airbender in general is great. (laughs) Yes. One of my favorites. You know, speaking of someone like Toph, it brings to mind The Country of the Blind by H.G. Wells, where this, the guy gets into the, the island or wherever he is, and uh, he's the only person with sight, and he then has to, um, well, he tries to adjust to the flow of the, the people that he's there with, um, and he finds that he struggles because they work in such a different way and they can't understand why he has trouble because all of them are blind. One of the things that is an interesting difference in a disabled community, because we can talk about the disabled community or the disability advocate community, but it varies quite a lot. Um, But one of the interesting things is that there is deaf culture throughout the Anglophone world and 
specifically there are subcultures of deaf culture in different English-speaking countries, and I, I think this is the case outside the Anglophone world, I don't know. But it is, it is not necessarily viewed entirely as a disability so much as a cultural issue, and there, there are rich uh, art forms and developments within that culture because of that, and trying to figure out when you're representing a particular disability, especially one that you yourself don't have, how do you find that balance between here is what is cultural for these people and here's what's a disability? That's really, really hard. Just thinking as a writer, I wouldn't want to go there. It's really tough. Yeah. It's very tough writing about stuff that you don't have a direct experience of. But then at the same time, we shouldn't be afraid to because that kind of becomes a one of those default excuses not mm-hmm. to include people. So. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of a lot of people I've heard speaking about either people of colour or people with disabilities have varied from, you know, you shouldn't write about it at all if you haven't experienced it or you're not that kind of person to, yeah, sure, write about it, but do your research first. If you are not that kind of person, go out and talk to them and go and find someone with this disability or with this skin color that you are trying to represent and talk to them about how they deal with everyday life and the challenges they face the things they enjoy and you know really really talk to them and and learn about their culture so that would that would seem to be the more sensible answer to me than you know don't write about it at all yeah for the record i'm perfectly willing to talk to people about my experience of having a balance disorder and the mobility disorder that follows from that very few people want to know. You might be inundated with requests after that. <laughs> okay, please look at my short story and see what you think. <laughs> well, you know, if it gets oppressive, I, I will have good boundaries. But to a certain level, I would welcome that because the only time I've ever seen my kind of balance disorder represented was last spring when I had a story in uh, Fireside magazine. That that was literally the first time I had ever seen somebody with uh, an inner ear-based balance disorder represented accurately in fiction. So if if anybody else wants to try to help, you know, the lines are open. So aside from speaking to someone directly, are there any other ways that you think people could research? So if someone wanted to, to learn more about Vertigo, aside from sending you their short story, where where is a good place to start? I mean, how would you even... Would you look up charities that deal with this kind of thing? Is there plenty of information on the internet? Um, memoir would be where I would start because a lot of times the charities around disability are focused on the people who help disabled people rather than the people who are disabled people. And with all goodwill in the world, I think it's very easy to focus on, oh, it is so hard for me as an able-bodied person to help my child with this thing. And that's a very different perspective. And it's a valid perspective. Um, You know, parents, caregivers, partners. But it isn't the same in the in the same way that you don't go to a white spouse and say so you're married to an Asian person what's it like being Asian you know you you would go to an actual Asian person and have specific I I guess one of my things there is uh, if you are doing research start with specific questions and see if you can find those because gosh what's it like being you is such a big question, no matter what your identity is, that it's hard to know, you know, if somebody starts with, so what is that like then? It's hard to know what to even tell them. Whereas if they say, okay, can you tell me what some of the challenges are of trying to get diagnosed? That's a very different question than what are the challenges of trying to get groceries? It's an interesting one. So my my mother is um, an occupational therapist. And when I was a kid, she worked in the spinal unit of the hospital. And I always remember because I used to, because both my parents worked, I was often there in the hospital in sort of the afternoons after school um, and hanging out with her. And I mean, I always loved it because I got to, you know, play around and, and in the wheelchairs and crutches and all sorts. But you know, part of mum's job is to help people get back to 
their lives and and just kind of basic things though and and it would always strike me as as you know that kind of how much you take for granted and you know just seeing mum work with people to just help them be able to take a shower on their own or uh, you know things like that and it's it's very it's the small things I think that could potentially really um, help people understand I guess what it is like and those are the things that tend to be overlooked or just Mm -hmm. yeah missed out so my aunt is, uh, or was, she retired, uh, the director of volunteers for a hospital in my area. And one of the things she did was she made the um, the people who were in charge of the physical aspect of the hospital, the, you know, the people who made sure that the new sinks were installed properly and all of that. Yes. She made She made them go about in a wheelchair to find out, you know, are the sinks at a reasonable height? The mirrors, can you even see yourself in the mirror if you are using a wheelchair in this bathroom? You know, that kind of question. And that can be very useful. It also can be very reductive because someone who uses a wheelchair full-time has had someone like your mother to teach them or they've figured out tricks on their own and can do a great deal more. I've I've read articles that people are trying to do what they call the bird box challenge where they're going around oh, blindfolded. Yes. And this this does not actually give you insight into what it is like to be blind. And there are tons of memoirs from blind people and from people who have gone blind. So, you know, you can figure out some exercises like that, but you know, often people who like your mother who do occupational therapy have figured out what the good exercises are to do to to figure out what it is like to do that sort of thing but also just more along the lines of doing research and talking to actual people yeah (laughs) rather than stunts i was also thinking about what marissa said earlier about you know don't go to the spouse of of someone who is, is black and ask them what it's like to to be you know a black person but i think when it comes to people with disabilities I think depending on the severity of the disability, you are probably going to get a really interesting insight into the other characters of your novel if you can talk to the people who who live with and love the person with the disability. So I have my own condition that I know people are trying to fight to get it recognised as a disability right now, but I never really appreciated until I grew up just how much it affected those people around me and how much it changed my relationship to them when I had an attack and things like that. And... I think that there is a lot to be gained if you're a writer from not just thinking about that person with a disability and going, how would it shape that person? But also, how would it shape the people around them and the people that they live with? And I think you can build everybody up and build your whole character, build your whole group up into being a much better overall group that doesn't just have this one person who's kind of out on their own and nobody knows how to react to. If you do genuinely talk to other people who deal with this disability on a daily basis and who who lives with someone or like Megan's mother helps them out and how that actually, how it affects them as well. And how they how their own emotional response to that person is tailored by their own feelings. Yeah. One of my biggest complaints in fiction in general is that a lot of traits are considered to exist in isolation. Mm-hmm. That it's, I, I have given this character, this trait and this character is the only one affected by it. And that's just not how human life works. Yeah. It's, <laughs> It's interesting how, um, you know, I, I've seen lots of little d- discussions about how, how to make a character, you know, more interesting or, you know, and it's it's about like giving them quirks or giving them something that dis- makes them distinctive. But somehow it's, you know, it'll be like um, uh, one thing that always comes to mind is one of Brandon Sanderson's series where one of the characters collects like terrible metaphors just like really <laughs> terrible metaphors. And that's like, that's the character. And you can always know that character because that character is always going to tell the terrible metaphors. And is always that kind of an example of it because everybody else just sort of goes with it. It's just very, like, the only character that really comments on the fact that he likes terrible metaphors is the guy who likes terrible metaphors. And I always mm. think, well, 
surely you'd be teased. Like, I know this is a completely random example, but it is this kind of thing when people seem to think that it's, it's just, yeah, as you say, like giving that one person a quirk or character trait and then nobody else really interacting with that trait. You mean it's not replicated throughout the rest of the well, world? Well, not necessarily replicated, just that it actually does impact their... Um, or at least gets acknowledged or it, it, it somehow... It changes d- their social network. Yes, exactly. And I think it changes their social... Any trait changes your social network in different ways with different people. So some of the the characters around Mr. Terrible Metaphor probably would tease him about it. Some would groan. Some would basically completely ignore it, but for but consciously, you know, because in their minds, a real person would have another trait, that there would be a reason to keep him around. And, you know, somebody might say to them, oh, doesn't it just annoy you so much when he comes out with these terrible metaphors? And they'd say, yes, but we raised foster kittens together and he's really kind to them or (laughs) some random other trait because nobody is just one trait. Yes, yeah. So I think when you're talking about disability rep, there are going to be people who are somewhat impatient with various disabilities in their lives and utterly patient with other disabilities in their lives. That's real. And I think we have a tendency in fiction to want to make it either character A is a good person and is kind to people with disabilities or character B is not a good person and is not kind to people with disabilities. But there are people who have infinite, infinite patience with figuring out physical logistics for somebody with a mobility disability and are very uncomfortable with people with intellectual disabilities or vice versa. And all of that is part of the complexity of being human. That's a really good point. <laughs> it's given me a lot to think about. Okay, so I, I wanted to introduce a question um, because I've been reading um, a lot of the background research which Megan has sent out. And I was just amazed when I sat down and thought about it, just how often disability is linked to evilness in characters. I mean, the one that really got me when I was reading it all was um, Gator from uh, BSG. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, the the updated one, Um, and how his disability just twists him and turns him into this really cruel person. And then when I read a bit further, I was like, well, actually, there's loads of examples. And it's just... It's just so awful. And I I just... I can't believe it. So I guess I wanted to ask you um, who the the worst sort of examples are of this kind of thing and whether there's any any characters you feel that um, sort of buck this trend almost. Well... The the phrase that I end up using with family and friends is Batman villain, when I think that a character is having, uh, it's very medieval, it's uh, their outward form as a reflection of their inward soul. So mm-hmm. when you have Darth Vader is one of the prime examples to me, that that Darth Vader has lost most of his limbs. He has severe burns all over his body. And what we hear about him is he's more a machine than man now, twisted and evil. And so the two are intimately, intimately linked in the worldview of that universe. And you think, well, what are the amputees who aren't twisted and evil? You know, that Luke Skywalker is struggling with his his hand, will he become more like his father instead of well, no, because that's silly. Um, and and so uh, I think Gata was a particularly painful example because it is intensely frustrating to suddenly become disabled. And if you show any of that at all, it immediately veers over into this villainy. Um, and, you know, don't become a bitter cripple. Yeah. You have to be the happy, upbeat cripple at all times, or you have you know, gone over the edge to the dark side, and there you will stay. And I use the C word there, and I feel I can because it's internal to me, because it's, it's the group that I am part of. But, uh, but it is something that just gets frustrating, having to live the 
the perky, constantly cheerful, or else tip over into being this kind of villain. And honestly, what I would like to see is villains who are rounded people, you know, with many traits, whose disability doesn't seem to be reflective of their inmost soul. And I think the way, once again, the way to do that is to have more disabled characters. Well, I was kind of thinking about the gate wrong, so you said it was it was so disappointing. And I think there's a fine line because one of the people, one of the articles I read said, well, the way they portray it is it's the worst thing that could have happened to him, despite the fact that half the human race has been wiped out. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at it and I went, well, that's true. But thinking about it from a purely selfish point of view, Yes, the whole of the human race might be wiped out and that might make you incredibly sad, but obviously getting suddenly getting a disability rather than, you know, growing up with it like many of us have um, can be quite life shattering. And I think there's a fine line to walk between showing a character who is genuinely dealing with suddenly having a disability when they had none before compared to, you know, having a disability go, this is terrible, I must turn evil. I think there's still scope to kind of explore what happens when someone who previously didn't have a disability suddenly gets one for whatever reason. But I think too often they just push it into making them turn completely insane. And that seems such a wasted opportunity. Well, and it's so lacking in empathy that there there is not the moment where anybody says, well, you know what? I would probably have some pretty dark moments too. And that's maybe human and something that we should all acknowledge and deal with. They had the opportunity, as I think you're absolutely right, that yes, all of humanity was destroyed, but you are allowed to also have a bad day. And you, <laughs> yes. you, are, you are allowed to have things that are even bigger than a bad day that matter because they happen to you. That, you know, when a tragedy strikes and thousands of people die, it also still matters if someone close to you gets a cancer diagnosis. And both are allowed to matter they shouldn't detract from each other i was also quite interested because we talked about people with disabilities becoming villains but there's also a horrible trend within media to show your own villainy resulting in a disability and i think that you was talking there about darth vader and admittedly not in the first you know episodes four till whatever it is what is it megan four till Four, five, and six, the original trilogy. Four, five, and six. Yeah, the original <laughs> trilogy, um, where he just turns up as a, a character, as Marissa said, with a lot of disabilities. But then you kind of get back to the prequels, and suddenly he is a slightly annoying person, <laughs> a slightly annoying kid who grows up and turns evil, and because of his evil nature, then becomes disabled, which is just another really terrible trope. It's it's a bit like what you were saying earlier, Marissa, about like the Batman villains, where the the villains kind of their outward appearance becomes a representation, you know, the the representation of their evil within, and you know, the the Joker kind of becomes as ugly as his soul, or you know, <laughs> not quite that dramatic, but that's the kind of thing, and and that is, you know, a really terrible trope that we see a lot, where it, it's like that, uh, saying that a a very visible physical disability is used as a way to sort of like visually flag someone as a villain which is just awful well it's validating the uh reaction of small children of i see something that i don't understand that is different and it scares me and instead of saying okay but people are varied and that doesn't mean that this person is scary it you know when you have this kind of cartoon villain thing going it says well yes they they look scary because they are scary and it it kind of validates the worst instincts that humans have i was just thinking about beauty and the beast and how if you think about it in these terms it's actually kind of not a very nice story uh, you know looking taking the um you know kidnapper falling in love with a uh, well, the kidnappee falling in love with a kidnapper side um, away from it as well. But, you know, the, the beast is kind of horrible while he's a beast. And then as soon as he is good again, he's the lovely, handsome prince. Whoa, whoa. So, uh, no, not completely. <laughs> no, because he's actually, like, he's not horrible at all. Like, okay, yeah, he might have a beastly appearance, but 
he's always been the same person he is inside, right? It depends on which version. Oh, I suppose so. Yeah. It doesn't have good manners. He's got no, you know. He's... Oh, but that's before he was a beast. I see where you're going with this. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that depending on what version of the story you're dealing with, but quite often he was horrible and mannerless, and they decided that because of that he would become Darth. No, no, sorry, different story. That he would <laughs> be a, a beast, and it really does reinforce the if you see someone that you perceive as as ugly or malformed it's because there's something wrong with their personhood not just wrong with their health well fairy tales are are really terrible at this i was just saying to megan before we started that i was trying to rewrite a fairy tale for um the upcoming national fairy tale day and i chose jack madden um i don't know if any of you are aware of it it's um a story about um two hunchbacks who end up losing their hunch well it's actually no one is really nice and sweet and ends up having his hunch taken away from the fairies and the other person is really terrible and ends up having two hunchbacks um and i was desperately trying to rewrite it in a modern way that would would make it more sympathetic would you know show that the disability didn't really matter and there was there was just no way i mean megan sent through um a miscreants link about five signs your story is ableist and even with the best possible spin on it this story has at least three problems with it uh, out of the five and i think there's a lot of ingrained stuff that we don't even think about that just like you say a little a little bit like beauty and the beast but also like jack madden and all the other things all the fairy tales you see everybody is um is magically cured and even in what is it Rapunzel where the prince falls out the window and is blinded when he finds Rapunzel she cries tears onto his eyes and he magically has his sight restored and you know even though that's left out of most fairy tales it's it's still within our psyche and it's still replicated I think even on a very basic level although I have to say hats off to um, CBeebies who seem to be doing an excellent job of getting a lot of different able-bodied people within um, their presenters and also within the children that they have um participating in the uh, in the programs that they have sorry just a shout out to cbb's there who are doing very well in this area i wanted to bring up body augmentation in science fiction you end up getting representation of things like uh, amputees certainly more so um than you know that you do in fantasy but they then you have this problem where it becomes oh look i'm now superhuman because i've got this super strong arm now or yes or kind of like darth vader and the you know that he's very strong can do all these things because like his arms and legs are robotic and and so on and it's it's interesting because body augmentation seems to be well it just it's around now that people are playing around with it um different kind of technologies and a lot of science fiction seems to want to include that kind of thing in their stories but i'm not sure there are many examples where it doesn't become a kind of again maybe maybe it's more like what what charlotte was saying earlier with like the the kind of magical oh yes um i had a terrible accident with a um you know factory machine and i lost all my limbs but now i'm even better and even stronger than i was before and it kind of almost glorifies it um in well, a twisted way i think one of the things that uh, that i see with body augmentation stories is not so much glorifying as i see them reflecting a deep-seated insecurity about being human that one of the questions that seems to be of intense interest to a lot of science fiction writers is where is the line where people no longer count as human? Mm. And I really would like for us to be less concerned with that line and just go forward assuming that other people count as people because we have done the worst things as a species when we don't. So, you know, they're they're not looking at analogies like my grandmother has had a knee replacement. Nobody Nobody asks, well, is she less human because she's had her knee replaced with the titanium one? You know, no. I wear contact lenses. And so nobody looks at that augmentation and says, yes, but are you truly human? And so I think that rather than either glorifying body augmentation or having these moments of, 
but will I lose my humanity? It would be refreshing to deal with more stories where it's just something that people do to deal with either problems that they have or problems they would like to solve in their environment and just move on with it, acknowledging that everybody really truly is still human and we don't have to have this kind of insecurity about it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> it's been lovely to speak to you, Marissa, but it's not been a wonderful episode because we just keep agreeing with everything you say. <laughs> Normally we disagree like crazy, whereas we're like, yeah, it all makes perfect sense. <laughs> I'm so sorry not to be more controversial. <laughs> and yet, oh, not I- controversial, but... It's sad that we're all sitting here going, yeah, absolutely, this, this needs to happen. So why hasn't it happened? Why yeah. isn't there better representation? Well, it's it, hard. It, it is legitimately hard. That it, it is the kind of hard that is worth doing. But I think laziness is, quite honestly, the main answer. And um, when I was revising the book that my agent has at the moment, I noticed that I had not put any disabled people in. And I had myself a little pity party about why do I have to make this secondary character good disability rep? Why does it have to be me? And then I thought, well, pull your socks up. It's because it needs doing. And I went and did it anyway. But would I have had that thought if I wasn't disabled myself? I don't know. Yeah. Does it fall to the people who are, you know, in need of representation to do the representation? Yeah, and quite often the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. You know, Should it be yes? Well, no, but it is. One thing that I think won't be controversial in this group that I wanted to touch on, that is, we have not, as a community, we have started to have conversations about sexual harassment and assault, you know, as a science fiction and fantasy community. We have not even begun to talk about how that intersects with disability. And I don't want to do that here. This is not the time and place, but I do want to flag it that that is something that needs to happen in the future. Because I know I'm not the only one who has stories where intersectionality was particularly horrific there. Um, But we, we have not even gotten to that part yet as a community. And I simultaneously think that it's sorely needed and I'm not looking forward to doing it. Well, hopefully, if, you know, just... Things like us talking, not that we are the uh, gold standard, but people talking about better representation and and bringing light to these issues, hopefully those conversations will start. Yeah, I hope so too. We're like the ripple, like the tiny, tiny, the tiny stone (laughs) that drops in a giant pond. (laughs) One day ripples might reach the shore. Well, hopefully if we do it and a few other people do it and there are lots and lots of little stones, they'll create giant, great, big waves that will uh, bring about a major change. It's a good thought. A huge thank you to Marissa Lingen for joining us on this episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. We hope you found this episode as enlightening as we did. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Lucy Houtsom and Charlotte Bond. If you like what you hear, please show us a little love, subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.